my privilege to be back before you again today uh, to dig in again in the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verses 21 to 23. Um, Matt indicated at the, at the beginning that the kids would all be out. And last week I began the sermon with a, with a uh, Christmas story. And I don't have one today that... I do have a Christmas story, but it's a little later on, so the kids couldn't be up here to listen to it. But um, Matt indicated at the beginning that you know, we wouldn't hear any rude noises. But he, I think he forgot that I was preaching, which, um, you know, me and rude noises kind of go hand in hand. The, um, thank you so much to the Shankles for coming and, and uh, sharing with us in Sunday school and for sharing with us uh, and doing the, the Advent candle. Next week, it's Clayton and Rebecca and Lorelai who are going to do the Advent candle. And if you guys could, if you could arrange for Lorelai to read those verses with a nice Australian <laughs> accent, it'd be great. The, uh, that was, a, that was a, a nice treat. We don't get to hear the, those Aussie accents very often here. So, all right. I'm going to start off today just by reading Colossians 1, but I want to read verses 15 to 23 just so we can get a fuller context. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is, the, he is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He's also head of the body, the church, and He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross." Through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning um, to dig into your word and to learn from it, to hear what it is that you had to say through the Apostle Paul to the church at Colossae, nearly 2,000 years ago. And Father, it speaks to us mightily today as we consider the great personal work of Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray for blessing on this time. I pray that Your Spirit would move in our midst, encourage our hearts, and convict us. Let us walk more closely with You as a result of our being together today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we discussed the nature and the person of Jesus Christ as Paul describes him here in the Colossian letter. And I hope that that blessed you um, just as it blessed me to put pen to paper and voice to words and thoughts. And my hope and prayer then and now is that my small and singular voice would amplify and magnify the greatness of our Lord Jesus. 
and that your hearts would be overwhelmed as mine is with his glory and his greatness. Because there's none like Jesus. He's the first, he's the greatest, and he's worthy of all of us. And though we talked much about Christ's nature and his person last week, we also ended last week's sermon with Christ's work, his cosmic work. That which Christ accomplished and is accomplishing, and that left us with a discussion about reconciliation. The Apostle Paul wrote Colossians. He, he also wrote a lot of our New Testaments. And throughout, he uses a number of different images or words to describe the richness of the salvation that we have in Christ. And there's five of these words that are important. And I'm indebted to John MacArthur for this succinct list of five little words that describe the richness of our salvation. And they're these. The first one is justification. In justification, a sinner stands before God guilty and condemned, but he's declared righteous. Redemption is the second one. And in redemption, a sinner stands before God as a slave, but is granted freedom. Freedom from sin. The third one is forgiveness. And in this case, a sinner stands before God as a debtor. But the debt is paid and forgotten. The fourth is the image of adoption. A sinner stands before God as an orphan with no family, but is made God's son or daughter. The last one, the fifth one, is the one we're talking about today, reconciliation. And in this case, a sinner stands before God as an enemy, but he becomes his friend. The concept of reconciliation in our New Testaments means to change or exchange one relationship for another relationship. It speaks of man being restored to a right relationship with God. And last week we talked about Jesus' ultimate end goal of reconciling all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And Christ's work of reconciliation will be cosmic in its scope. And in this cosmic reconciliation, the appropriate understanding of reconciliation as it is applied to the fallen angels or the rebellious spirits, the entities in creation, whether they're spirit beings that have rebelled or whether they're human beings that have rebelled. Because remember in the context here, Paul was talking about spirit beings, the thrones, dominions, authorities, and powers. That the, the correct understanding here is not that those that have rebelled will be made friends with God again. That's not the sense, especially in terms of these spirit beings. Because to suggest this is to ignore the analogy of Scripture and all that it clearly teaches regarding those in rebellion to God. And the sense in which fallen angels and unredeemed men will be reconciled to God in the future is in that sense that they will finally be held to account before Him. And they'll be given final sentencing. Their relationship will change from the rebellious enemies that they are at large, on the loose, to those ultimately arrested and judged and condemned for their rebellion. In this sense, all will be made right. All will be reconciled. Romans 16.20 conveys this sense. The God of peace, it says, will soon crush Satan under your feet. And in Philippians 2, 10 to 11, a verse and series of verses we're all familiar with, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth, those spirit beings and the earthly beings. Every single one of us are going to bow the knee to Jesus. And even under the earth, those spirit beings under the earth, those consigned to 
the dark corners of Tartarus, as it talks about in some of the epistles, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In one way or another, God will reconcile all to Himself. And this week, we move on from Christ's cosmic work in reconciliation to His personal and individual work of reconciliation. For the, the great and cosmic work of Christ's reconciliation of all things begins with the small things. It begins with the individuals. It begins with people. Reconciling people. For the great cosmic work of Christ begins with us. And Paul discusses the work of individual reconciliation in the framework of a relationship. It's fitting that he does. At the basic level... Reconciliation involves the bringing about of peace between two individuals who are at odds with one another. So Paul discusses reconciliation in terms of two parts. And this was going to be our framework for the rest of the sermon. The two parts of reconciliation are Christ's part in reconciliation. And that's verses 21 to 22. And the second major point is going to be our part in reconciliation. And we'll discuss verse 23 in that. So these are going to be our organizing principles in the sermon today. Christ's part in reconciliation and our part. The way Paul discusses Christ's part in reconciliation is with chronological language. Language related to the past. Language related to the present. Language related to the future. And so let's dig in, okay? In verse 21. Verse 21 concerns the past life of the Colossians. And we can tell this by the usage of the words, were formerly... And although you were formerly, he begins. And Paul uses three descriptors to describe the state of the Colossians' relationship to God before they heard and believed the gospel message. The first one is alienated. They were alienated from God. In other words, the Colossians were estranged. They were shut out from fellowship and intimacy with God. The same exact word is used in the sister epistle to the Ephesians where Paul wrote in Ephesians 2.12, remember that you were at at that time separate from Christ. That's the word there, separate. It's the same word for in Colossians, alienated. You were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And if you remember a few weeks back, that when we went over the important Epaphras and kind of the historical background for this, remember there's a man named Tychicus and Onesimus who brought the letters back from Rome to Colossae. And he also had two other letters besides the Colossian one. One was the letter to Philemon that we have in our New Testament. And the other one in the book of Colossians is referred to as the letter to Laodicea. Most scholars believe that that letter to Laodicea is actually the book of Ephesians. And a lot of people can consider Ephesians and Colossians to be sister epistles because there's so many similarities in the things that they say and even in the way that things are said. So the same thing is likely in Paul's mind here for the Colossians when he says that they were alienated. That they, like the Ephesians, are excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So, being Gentiles, those in the Colossian church, many were foreign to the Word of God. Foreigners to the Word of God and the ways of God's people. And being in that state, they had no hope 
and were without God in the world. As it says, this is the state of all mankind as it pertains to God's covenants of promise. This includes Jews and Gentiles alike that have not received Christ's reconciling work. They're alienated. They're shut out from fellowship and intimacy. When I was a kid, I remember feeling this sense of alienation when I went to church. When I was around God's people in church, I felt like an outsider. Feeling like I was in the same building and in the same room with them all, but not in the same frame of mind, not in the same mood, not of the same understanding, not sharing the same interests. I was an alien. It's not that the people weren't kind and welcoming to me. It's just that they kept wanting to talk about the things that I didn't understand. They cared about things that I didn't care about. It was like I wasn't with my people, so to speak. After all, how could people sit and listen to the same guy drone on and on about what seemed to be the same topic week after week after week? This is what I thought a sermon was. And what was with all of the singing? Who does that? And who gets together and just sings? Weirdos. And, and what's with all the weird words that they used, you know, that nobody else in all of life ever used? These theological jargon words that we, we banter around with sometimes. Have you ever felt this way when you're with God's people? Like an alien? Do you remember a time in your life when you avoided church because you felt like you weren't with your people? Do you ever feel like this today? Well, in my case, the alienation I felt when I was in the presence of God's people was ultimately due to my alienation from God Himself. This is what Paul was stating about the Colossians before they received the gospel. They were alienated from God. And the reason that they were alienated from God was not God's fault, nor was it the fault of God's people, as Paul goes on to describe. Because next he describes their former state as being hostile in mind. They were alienated and they were hostile in mind. The reason that they were alienated and shut out from fellowship and intimacy with God and His people was because of the hostility of their own minds. They set themselves up in their hearts and minds as enemies of God. And the connotation here is active hatefulness and attitude. Romans 1.21 describes this in a different way. It says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him or give, or as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Humanity, alienated from God, finds a self-satisfying existence. A self-satisfying existence that's willfully ignorant of God because they're actively hostile to His Word and His ways. James 4.4 says this, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You know, as I grew older in my childhood, in pre-adolescence, and eventually into adolescence, this became clearly the case in my own life as well. I felt alienated, but the reason why The deeper cause was my own hostility toward God. There was an instance when I was 11 or 12 years old, and I was still unconverted to Christ, and I had not believed the gospel, but my sister was a believer. My sister, Rochelle. Many of you know her. 
And this made me all the more hateful toward God. Um, because I didn't want anything to do with anything my sister wanted to do with. Nothing. I was a real weirdo about, about all of this. If Rochelle liked school, I hated school on principle. If she liked church, I would hate church on principle. If she liked soccer, which she did, I hated soccer on principle. I, I literally refused to ever play soccer because my sister played it, even though it probably would have been very fun for me. If she liked singing, I hated it on principle. And, you know, one time I remember on this point, the singing point, our classes when I was in grade school had a Christmas concert that we were going to do. One Thursday after school, all the kids were going to come back dressed up nice, stand on risers in the gymnasium where it would be decorated for Christmas, and all their parents would come and watch them sing Christmas songs. And I was to be a part of this, and so was my sister in a different class. But I stood on those risers, and as everyone around me sang, I stood there like this. I refused to sing. And people asked my parents about it, like, what's wrong with Eric? Why is he not singing? My parents were embarrassed. I was just a belligerent, weirdo little kid that didn't want anything to do with the things that my sister liked. I had a real hostility toward my sister. And when she would talk about God, it only made me more hostile. My sister had a dry erase board in her bedroom. And sometimes, periodically, she would write with a marker on that dry erase board some of the prayers that she had prayed. And one morning, I remember going into her room, for whatever reason, to pick on her, probably. And I read her dry erase board. And on that board, it was just a prayer to God, thanking God for helping her with the sorrow of the previous night or with the fear of the previous night. I can't remember exactly. But my reaction to that prayer was mockery and disgust. I was like, this is gross. What in the world? My alienation from God and God's people was the result of the hostility within my own heart and mind. I was exactly what Paul just described the Colossians as here. Hostile in mind. He says, and so were you before you received Christ's reconciliation. And so are you right now. So are you right now if you have not received Christ's reconciliation. If you've yet to receive Christ's offer of friendship that's found in the message of the gospel, you're an enemy of God and of His people. Not because of any insult or injury that they have given you, but because of the hostility within your own heart toward Him. Have you ever stopped to think of it in this way? Have you ever considered that the problem is not with those whom you feel alienated from, but with your own deep-seated hostility? And when you really stop to think long and hard about it, if you're honest with yourself, you'll likely see that the reason beneath your hostility that alienates you is your decided course in life to live as you please and not as God would have you live. And Paul goes on to his third description of the Colossians' former life, which is this, they were engaged in evil deeds. John 3.19-20 says this, This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. 
For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Romans 1, 18-19 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. Isaiah 59, 2-3 describes this underlying cause of alienation so well. It says this, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken falsehood. Your tongue mutters wickedness. The deeds of evil merely reveal the heart of the matter. And the heart of the matter is the heart of man that loves evil and darkness and shuns the light. The light of God's goodness. And so, the presence of God's people produces a reflexive revulsion in them. Because they do not share your love or their love for the darkness. And many try to find a place to blame God's people here in the church. They blame the church for failing to welcome and failing to love and failing to embrace and failing to accept as they should. But I would submit to you that that is not truly where the blame lies, at least not most of the time. But sadly, many in the church have have been deceived into accepting this line of reasoning. And they've changed course on various issues in an attempt to make peace with those who point the finger of accusation toward the church. And they call her unloving. And they call her hateful. And they call her intolerant. And they call her bigoted. God's word is not bigoted. Nor is it unloving. Nor is it hateful. God's word is intolerant of evil. And it's right to be so. The blame lies in the one who wants to have things their own way and yet be reconciled. The blame lies with those who pretend that they want to enjoy the fellowship of God's people while at the same time living by and agreeing with the world's standards for what right and wrong are. Clinging to their evil deeds, they seek to push God's people into acquiescence and acceptance of their sinful lifestyle. But they deceive themselves into thinking that they're friends of God. And they deceive God's people by pretending that the only hostility between themselves and the church lies with the church who's judgmental toward their identity. And because of this supposed judgmentalism on the part of the church, they feel bullied into suppressing their authentic selves. This is a lie that permeates our culture today. The Bible very clearly declares that our authentic selves are fallen and desperately wicked and deceitful. Your authentic self, according to Scripture, is a nature that's bent towards sin, in love with darkness, and more prone to lie than to ever tell the truth. Your insistence that God's people change their standards so that you feel less judged is nothing more than another iteration of your tendency to deceive and your refusal to bow your heart to God and admit that His standards are best 
and his word is true. Reconciliation cannot happen as long as you harbor hostility in your mind toward God. Nor can it occur as long as you cling to your evil deeds. But for Paul, in this letter to the Colossians, he was describing their former life. And so today, in this sermon, for likely most of you in this room, what I've described is your former life also. If that's not the case, I beg you, I beg you to hear me on this point before I move on. The things that I've said up till now are not intended to hurt you. They are not motivated by hatred or bigotry. The opposite is true. As God is my witness, what I've said today is true. If you are alienated from God today, the reasons for that separation are your own hostility toward God and your embrace of evil deeds. You're in a dangerous position and your future will not be peaceful. I stand before you today as Paul did to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20. I stand before you as an ambassador for Christ as though God were making an appeal through me. I beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. But better things were in mind for the Colossians. And Paul moves on. So in verse 22... This concerns the present life of the Colossians. And we can tell this by the usage of the the phrase, yet he has now. So he's talking about their present. Yet he has now reconciled you, it says. In the context, Paul means that the opposite of what he just said describing their former life. Because they were reconciled, they were no longer alienated. They no longer felt the barrier to fellowship and intimacy with God and God's people. They sensed that when they were in fellowship... They were among friends. They were with their people, so to speak. And isn't that sort of the draw for us today in the church? This week, driving home from youth group, my son Gideon asked the question about why fellowship is important to God. Why do we have to get together and get together for church and stuff like that? And my response was not as thorough or well thought out as at the time. It was pretty basic. Like, well, God commands us to. We need each other. And, but, you know... Um, I come back to it now with this thought. It's good when the sense of alienation is gone, isn't it? When that sense of I don't belong is gone. When you're finally in a place where you sense that what you're with your people, that's a blessing. And the basis for this fellowship has nothing to do with external or physical or cultural distinctions. It doesn't matter your ethnicity or your socioeconomic status or your gender or your language. God's people are included in fellowship with each other on the basis of their reconciliation to God through Christ. Because they were reconciled, the Colossians no longer bore any hostility in their minds and hearts toward God. And that reflexive revulsion that I talked about to God and His people was gone. Now when they thought of God, they saw Him as a friend, not as an enemy. They changed their minds. They had repented. Not just in what they thought, but also in their deeds. They no longer set the course of their lives in rebellion to God's standards. They set themselves to the task of learning God's word and obeying it. And they no longer loved the darkness, but rather seeing the wisdom of of God's ways sought to walk in the light of his presence. They were reconciled. They were friends with God. I told you how I was such a mean little kid toward my sister. 
Well, thankfully, all that changed eventually. And it happened during the summer between my eighth grade year of middle school and my freshman year of high school. I grew up quite a bit during that summer, physically, hormonally, and uh, even the beginnings of spiritual growing occurred in that summer. Uh, The transition, though, from middle school to high school can be very intimidating. You're changing buildings. You're changing wake-up times and bus schedules. You're changing peer groups. You're going from the big man on campus back in middle school to the bottom of the barrel as a freshman in high school. I was barely post-pubescent, and I was nervous about how I was going to fit into this new paradigm in high school. But my biggest concern was, who would be my people? Where would I fit in? I didn't want to feel like an alien. My sister had already navigated this big transition on her own three years prior, and she had a really good group of friends that she spent time with. They were friends that even encouraged her spiritually. And even though I had been ruthlessly mean to my sister as a little kid when we were growing up, she nonetheless took me under her wing, and she included me and my friends in her friend group, and that was really grounded in young life. I was introduced to her young life leaders, like Jen Barkley, who was here just two or three weeks ago, and Joel Covert, who was her co-leader, and later on that year, Bill Haley. I met all these people, and in these people, I couldn't deny that the hostility that existed between me and God and God's people fell squarely on my own shoulders. Because these people were anything but hostile. There was nothing hostile about them. They were as kind and as fun and as selfless as any people I'd ever met in my whole life. And, I had, and they had something that I wanted desperately. And that was friendship with God. Let's go back to Paul and what he said to the Colossians. He says that Jesus reconciled them in his fleshly body. So this reconciliation that the Colossians enjoyed did not come about because of anything that they said or did, nor did it come about because of some sacrifice that they offered to appease God's wrath. The spiritual change that had occurred in their lives came about because of the physical body of Jesus. And this, the way this is put, it almost sounds redundant, like he's repeating the same word twice. And this is the only time actually in all of the Bible where these two words ever appear together like this. And uh, what, what is Paul's purpose here, we might ask, when we look at these two words together? And I think it's significant that this appears in the letter to the Colossians. Because in a special way, as we've learned in each of these sermons in Colossians, that there was a false teaching in the midst of the church there. Um, and Paul was combating that. Uh, he was combating that false teaching that was in their church. So it's very likely, if this false teaching was a form of pre-Gnosticism, like I've mentioned before, that Paul was refuting the idea that Jesus didn't actually have a physical or a material body. A lot of them taught that he was rather just a spirit being that only appeared to be physical. It could be that that's what they were teaching. And remember in the context, Paul had told them in using that hymn from verses 15 to 20, Uh, which they were likely familiar with, that Jesus was the physical and the visible image of the spiritual and invisible God. And that all the fullness of God dwelt in Jesus. So the firstborn of all creation became the firstborn from the dead by experiencing a real physical death. 
It says, in his fleshly body through death. Without this literal physical death of of the body of Jesus, there would be no reconciliation between any of the Colossians and God. Without the death of Christ's physical body, there would never be the birth of Christ's spiritual body, the church from verse 18. And without the resurrection of that physical body of Jesus from the dead, there would never be this new resurrected creation that the Colossian fellowship enjoyed. And this word death is just a restating of what we see back in verse 20 with what was conveyed by the reference to the blood of His cross. So this allusion to Jesus' body and, and blood points us back to the Old Testament sacrificial system where an animal's life and blood were taken to make atonement for the sins of people. And that sacrificial system, even back then, pointed to a reality that we seldom consider about God. And that's this. God does not delight in punishing people for their sins. God desired to make a way so that He did not have to give the punishment of death that mankind's sins deserved. Because He loved mankind, He poured out the punishment that they deserved upon a lesser animal being. The punishment of death was to to communicate the severity of the sin in the eyes of God, and the animal substitute was to communicate God's kindness and mercy toward the highest of His creatures, mankind. Think of the image of Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah for a moment. Isaac, the son, laid out in bondage on an altar, ready to be bloodied and dead. Abraham, the father, with his arm outstretched and blade in hand, ready to plunge that knife into the fleshly body of his own son that he loved. Who was it that stayed Abraham's hand that day? The text tells us that it was the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord, believed by many to be none other than God the Son in the Old Testament before the incarnation of Jesus in the New Testament. But punishment for mankind's sinfulness had to eventually come in a way that fit the drastic crimes that our hostile minds and our engagement with evil have wrought. The death of Jesus, the Son's fleshly body, was a sacrifice of atonement, and it was so that the Colossians, and by extension you and me, don't have to lay down our own lives on that altar of sacrifice. Jesus did it in our stead. There and then, in their present reality, the Colossians experienced friendship with God because of the bodily death of Jesus on the cross and His bodily resurrection from the dead. When the Colossians saw the goodwill that God had toward them as displayed in Jesus' willingness to die the death that their own sins deserved, and by, that their own sins deserved, and by extension, when we today realize that same thing, it's like a great beam of light shines into our hearts and it exposes where the true hostility lays. It's not with God. It's not with God's people. It's inside of us. We have been the ones unreasonably hostile to God. And when we, by faith, receive the reconciliation offered by Jesus and surrender to His will, 
we sense the hostility melt away and the heart of stony hatefulness toward God softens into flesh and blood. We breathe with new lungs, we see with new eyes, and we sing with a new voice the glorious joy of being friends with God. So Paul has described the Colossians before they were reconciled. He's described their present reality of reconciliation, and now he moves to their future result of reconciliation here at the end of verse 22. Verse 22b, or the final part of verse 22, concerns the future life of the Colossians, and we can tell this by the implications conveyed in the word present. Even though it's present and present, it's a little confusing, it's present and the conditional nature of verse 23. This indicates that he's referring to the future. He says in verse 22b, in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. The ultimate goal of reconciliation is this presentation that will come for all of us when Jesus returns. Thus, in one sense, the goal of our current reconciliation to God is deeper and more intimate fellowship with Him when He returns bodily and physically in the future. But this deepening fellowship will not occur without our being purified, as it shows us here in this text. And Paul uses three descriptors to describe the purity before God. Two of those contain sacrificial imagery, and one contains judicial imagery. So the first one is this, holy. means separated from sin and set apart to God and for God. Christ's death brings us this holiness. It's not ours to achieve on our own by our own effort. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. He makes us holy. But He also makes us blameless. And this is the same term used in the Greek Old Testament to reference the purity of animal sacrifice, often translated as without blemish. So there was to be no imperfection in the animal offered for sacrifice. The same will be true for us when we stand before Jesus to be presented before Him. There must not be the slightest imperfection. And this too is not achieved by our striving. It's Jesus' gift to us when we believe the gospel because Jesus was that unblemished, spotless, and blameless lamb. 1 Peter 1.19 says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless. The blood of Jesus Christ. The third descriptor Paul uses is that one that has the judicial sense, and it's beyond reproach. It means no one can bring a charge or an accusation against you. Those who will be accepted at their presentation before Jesus, no one will be able to bring a charge of guilt against them. And this level of innocence is also not within sinful man's capability to attain. This too is a gift of God. Romans 8, 31-33 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died 
Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Thus, the future result of your present reconciliation to God is your ultimate purification and perfection before a holy God. So in light of this glorious good news of all that Christ has done to reconcile us to God, what's our responsibility in this restored relationship? This is what verse 23 is concerned with, our part in reconciliation. It says, If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel... Paul reveals a very important responsibility that all who profess Christ have, and that's perseverance. And the sad reality of Scripture is that many who profess to be Christians will not ultimately be proven genuine. Matthew 7, 22-23 says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in, in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. In Matthew 13, Jesus gives us the parable of the sower. And in the portion where he explains the meaning of the parable of the sower, he says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one whom the seed was sown beside the road. The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places. This is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no firm root in himself, but it is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil... This is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. You know, these types of warnings and urgings that appear in these conditional if-then statements are not rare for Paul in our Bibles. He makes these elsewhere. Look what he says in Romans 8, 13 and verse 17. He says, if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. And in verse 17, And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. Romans eleven twenty two, Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell. Severity. But to you, God's kindness, if you continue in His kindness... Otherwise, you also will be cut off. Galatians 5, 2-4. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You've been, ser- you've been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Here in Colossians, we have this same emphasis regarding the believer's responsibility. So, this opens up a whole huge can of worms, and I'm sure you'll be happy to discuss them in grace groups. If your grace group is still meeting, Kevin would probably send out a great, you know, question to talk about in your grace groups about this. The scope of what I want to talk about here is 
a different emphasis in this book and then this verse. I'll just say this. F.F. Uh, F. Bruce and Simpson, in their New International Commentary of the New Testament, state the following regarding this passage. And they're not staking a position, either or, for or against the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Here's what they say. If the Bible teaches the final perseverance of the saints, it also teaches that the saints are those that finally persevere. How's that for an answer? It's pretty good, actually, I think. The point is, and this rings true when interpreting Paul, that perseverance is the greatest evidence of genuine faith. We all agree on that. It's the ultimate evidence of genuine faith. What is it which the believers in Colossae must continue in? They must continue in the faith, which he later calls in this same verse, the hope of the gospel that you've heard. So this gospel message of Christ's atoning and substituting sacrifice for our sins is to be believed in and relied upon for salvation. This hopeful message is how we get saved and it's how we continue in that salvation. It's the gospel. This is what we persevere in. The faith. Paul describes this continuance here in verse 22 in two positive senses with two concepts in the negative sense and one in the positive sense. So, or I'm sorry, two in the positive sense and one in the negative sense. The positive senses are established and steadfast. So he says, firmly established and steadfast. So established uses the image of a foundation, of a building. It's that stable and that strong basis for the building of a structure upon. To the Colossians, And to us, that foundation is Christ Himself, the firstborn over all creation, the firstborn from the dead, the one who's first in all things. Steadfastness refers to a place where one sits, refusing to budge, steady and sure. This week, Mandy and I had a visitor in our house that spent the night with us named Henry. And Henry was a hound dog that was wandering around the neighborhood. And uh, he started wandering through our yard and there was a neighbor outside that drove by that was trying to keep him from running on the road. And we're like, who is this? What is, is this their dog? And then you help getting him. Well, it wasn't their dog. They're like, we were just trying to keep him out of the road. And I'm like, well, okay, let's put him in our backyard. So we took him in the backyard and he met Hank. He liked Hank. He liked all of us. We actually let him stay in our house. The flea-ridden flea bag. And uh, we let him come in. He, he laid in Hank's spot on the couch. And when it came to be nighttime, we were not going to just leave him on the couch, a stranger dog. He didn't make any mess in our house, thankfully, but we got the cage out and we're going to put him in the cage for the night. Well, when I went to put him in the cage, I threw a treat in there and he would just look at me. He wasn't moving. So I grabbed his collar, pulled it. He wasn't moving. He was steadfast. Henry was steadfastly against getting in the cage. He eventually got in it, thankfully. But this is what it means. To be steady and sure, not moving. And this is the negative sense. It's the synonym for what Paul says next. Not moved away from. Not moved away from the hope of the gospel that was proclaimed to you and to all the world. You see, the world and the God of this age, which is Satan, want nothing more than to move you away from this faith, this hope, this good news. 
that you can be reconciled to God. Paul knew this, that those who received the gospel message that he preached were going to be in perpetual danger from enemies that wanted to see them fall. And the tactics of the enemy to accomplish this objective moves along a continuum from deception to enticement to manipulation to coercion and to ultimately even violence and brutality. The enemy will spare no expense and go to any ends to get us to fall. The hostility that we once had in our minds toward God and His people still remains in those of the world, in the hearts of those in the world, not rescued yet from sin. And we increasingly sense this hostility directed toward us from our society, do we not? The enemy hates that we have this hope. And the pressure as long as we are in this life will be to move away from it. And this we must not do. Sadly, isn't this what we're seeing so many of the Christians that we have respected in times past doing? Compromising, caving in, cowering to the woke mobs of social justice warriors and cancel culture advocates. And so those who seek to remain firm and established and steadfast, as if the pressure from without was not enough to bear, now we feel pressure from those we once thought were in our camp and on our side. The times are perilous. And the shaking that has come this past six years has been immense. The casualties that casual Christianity has wrought are stacking up rapidly. And when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? The pressure to move away from this simple hope and faith is immense. And it often starts with good intentions stated as, we should be doing this, or we should be doing that, or we need to refocus over on these other things. And they may be good things, but they may also be distractions from the best thing. There's nothing that we can do or say or teach that will accomplish or resolve anything that will ever compare to what the gospel can do. The great need of all mankind is to be reconciled to God and only the gospel can bring that about. We once were alienated from God. Now, being reconciled through Christ, we're alienated from this world. And do we not increasingly sense that we no longer belong here? That we're less and less welcomed? I know I can sense it. Brothers and sisters, we've moved from alienated to alienated. 1 Peter 2.1, or 1 Peter 2.11 says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. I, like many of you here today, grew up during the 80s and the 90s. And as I remember it, only recalling my childhood perspective, there was a patriotic spirit of the age when I was growing up. The media and the entertainment and the government celebrated America. At least it seemed that way on the surface to myself as a child. And I remember liking to hear some of the speeches that Ronald Reagan gave even when I was a kid. 
He was president when I was just a little boy. I remember back in 1984, the Statue of Liberty was engulfed in scaffolding. Do you guys remember this? The great movie, Remo Williams, The Adventure Begins, was filmed that year. It was undergoing a massive renovation and repair that took two years. And the final piece of the work that was to be done was a renovation of the torch which Lady Liberty holds. And the lighting of that torch occurred the evening before July 4th, 1986, to commemorate our nation's birth. I recall watching the fireworks display after the speech that was given. And I also recall listening intently to the speech that President Reagan gave in New York City that night. And though I don't recall the content of the speech, more just the moment and the emotion of it, in that speech at the end, Ronald Reagan made the following remark. The God who gave us life, Thomas Jefferson once proclaimed, gave us liberty at the same time. But like all of God's precious gifts, liberty must never be taken for granted. He goes on to say, Tonight we thank God for the many blessings He has bestowed on our land. We affirm our faithfulness to His rule and to our own ideals. And we pledge to keep alive the dream that brought our forefathers and mothers to this brave new land. We are the keepers of the flame of liberty. We hold it high tonight for the world to see. A beacon of hope, a light unto the nations. And so with joy and celebration and with a prayer that this lamp shall never be extinguished, I ask that you all join me in this symbolic act of faith, this lighting of Miss Liberty's torch. Does anybody else remember that night? It's a different time that we live in now. But I recount this to you today to illustrate the sense of togetherness that was broadly felt in our country in the past. It was not universally felt. Don't hear me there. It was not universally felt, but it was broadly felt that it meant something very important and special to be an American. There was an overarching theme of appreciation for our country that unified the citizenry such that we felt as a nation we were with our people. Today, the hostility toward one another in our country is palpable. Whether it's between men and women, black and white, left and right, Hispanic and Asian, Muslim and Christian, gay and straight, trans and cis, liberal and conservative, and on down the line. Division, division, hostility. The unified appreciation for our country that I grew up with is not what the generation that is coming up experiences in the least. And my intent here today is not to diagnose and treat this cultural hostility with some political or judicial repair. I only bring it up to encourage you in your own navigation of this mess. How should we live in a land that loves darkness? And I just have one thing for you to ponder. The only rescue for our nation is the reconciling work of Jesus Christ.
And we as Christ's ambassadors here on this earth, reconciled to God and alienated from the world, we ought not harbor that same hostility in our minds toward the world that they harbor toward God and to us. When we receive Christ's reconciling work on the cross, our hostility toward God melts away. Do not keep that hostility cold and fresh in your own heart toward those who have not received that amazing gift of God's grace. Let it melt away. Let it melt away too in the warmth of God's love in Christ. Be ever, may it ever be in you as you pray for those outside of the kingdom and serve those who don't know Christ and speak to those who have questions and reach out to those who are still hostile to God and hostile to you because their hostility is ultimately toward God. Pity them and seek to minister to them that they too might see the light of the gospel that melts away the hostility. Let's pray. Father, I recall very well what it felt like to be alienated from you. And I know, God, it was my own hostility and my own engagement of evil deeds that kept me in love with darkness. Lord, it was not you. It was not God's people. It was me. And God, I just give you thanks and praise for the light of the gospel, for the change that it wrought in my life when I realized that when you died on a cross, you died for me. When I was hateful toward you, you were kind to me. Father, many about us don't see it. They don't see the glory of what you've done. They don't see the glory of the firstborn over creation and from the dead. Father, you're an afterthought to them, but it will not always be that way. Someday they will be reconciled to you either through the gospel or through your judgment. And Lord Jesus, we pray we would be about the business of sharing the gospel, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand for the benediction. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And as citizens of this new kingdom, depart with the charge of the gospel as your unifying theme as members of the body of Christ. Amen.